As we continue our study of the book of Romans, this morning we are moving into the next major section of the epistle of Paul to the Romans. Chapters 9 through 11 are pretty much universally seen by commentators as a complete section uh, and one that, that accomplishes a very specific purpose in Paul's overall purpose and, and plan for the letter to Romans. And one of the overriding concerns that Paul has throughout Romans 9 through 11 is the current condition of the Israelite people in tension with the promises and the faithfulness of God. In other words, during Paul's day, as he was going and preaching the gospel, there were, in general, a, a large-scale rejection of the gospel by the Jewish people. So as Paul went and as he preached the gospel, and remember back in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 16, he pretty much gave us the theme for the whole letter. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. And I think one of the concerns that Paul has in his own heart and his, in his own mind is how is the gospel, the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first when many, many, many in fact, a majority of Israelite people are not believing the gospel. And one of the concerns of Paul is he sees his brethren, his fellow Israelite people, and he sees them you know, on a large scale rejecting the gospel. And Paul's concern for them is for their ultimate salvation that they would be saved. But he's also wrestling theologically with how, how is God's promise? How are his covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with uh, the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, how are those promises and covenants going to be fulfilled if the Israelite people on a large scale are rejecting their Messiah? It's a very huge question for Paul in his mind and one that he wants us to wrestle with as well. Because it involves not only the salvation of the Jewish people, but also on a large scale, the question of what is God's overall eternal plan for the ages for the Israelite people? Has God forgotten about them? Has he abandoned them? Has he forsaken them because they've turned their back on Christ? These are large issues that Paul is dealing with, and it, and it directly relates to his whole presentation of the gospel that he started back in chapter 1, the, the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation to both Jew and Gentile. So this is crucial to his whole plan of presenting the gospel to the Roman Christians. And one of the things that we see as we begin this section of Romans is in verses 1 through 5, we see the heart of Paul. We see the heart of Paul for the Israelite people. And 
he expresses an incredible compassion and love for them. And I just want you to feel that, that compassion, that concern that he has for the Israelite people, as well as for the character of God, as we read these five verses that begin Romans chapter 9. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you that we can come together as your people today. And as we read these words of your servant Paul, not only are we reading the personal concerns, the personal love that Paul had for his fellow Israelite people, but we're also reading your eternal word that has eternal implications and application for us today, some 2,000 years later, even though we ourselves are not of the Israelite race or the Jewish people, what Paul is saying here is very important for us as Gentiles as well to understand your eternal plan, your saving purposes in the gospel. Lord, help us to understand what your word is teaching us, Help us to see how we can apply it to our own hearts and lives. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Paul has a great concern for the Israelite people. And I want us to see, first of all, that this is a personal concern. So Paul has a personal concern for the Israelite people. And this personal concern of Paul is accompanied by intense emotion. Intense emotion. As you read the first couple of verses, first of all, Paul wants us to know that he is, he is drawing our attention to something that is incredibly important. How does he do that? By basically invoking witnesses to the importance and the truthfulness of what he is about to say. It's almost as if in verse number one, he is taking an oath of truthfulness and he's calling witnesses to bear witness to that truth. And so he's saying, I speak the truth in Christ. In other words, I am making this statement of truthfulness with the Lord Jesus Christ as a witness to that truthfulness. And I am making this statement of truthfulness with my conscience also as a witness. 
and my conscience in harmony with the Holy Spirit as a witness. So he's drawing a two or threefold witness to the fact that he is speaking the truth and what he is saying here is of utmost importance. And what is he about to say? He's about to express his willingness to be accursed for his people that they might be saved. That is an incredible statement, isn't it? He says, my heart has unceasing anguish and great sorrow. The words that he uses here, you could hardly express it in greater terms. His heart is broken for, the, for his own people. He loves them. This is a concern out of love, sorrow, and anguish. So Paul's concern is accompanied by intense emotion. Paul's personal concern for the Israelite people is also accompanied by a willingness to engage in the greatest sacrifice. He says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. And the way this is phrased is probably Paul has in view here a a hypothetical wish. A hypothetical wish. Because he's the one that has just finished telling us at the end of chapter 8 that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of Christ, right? So what is there that can separate us from the love of Christ? Can angels or demons or powers or things present or things future, height or depth? No, none of this can separate us from the love of Christ. So when Paul says, I wish that I could be accursed, he knows that it is not either physically or theologically possible. He knows that he is in Christ by the redemptive work on the cross of Calvary. He knows that he is a child of God because of the work of Christ for him on the cross. He knows that for him to wish that he could be accursed, he knows that it, is not, it could not ever truly happen. But he has a willingness to sacrifice himself in that way for the sake of his people. That's how much his heart aches for the salvation of his fellow Jewish and Israelite people. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to read from Exodus 32 earlier in the service, because we see a similar concern of Moses in Exodus 32 when Moses goes back to the Lord and he says, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. Moses is saying, if you're not going to save your people, if you're not going to forgive your people, then blot me out of your book of life. But God comes back to Moses and says, that's not something that my justice can do. Those who have sinned they will be blotted out of the book. So Moses expresses this concern and his willingness to curse himself to save them. And Paul's concern is very similar, perhaps even drawn from that language of Exodus 32. Lord, curse me 
in order to save them. He has his concern for them involves a willingness to undergo the greatest sacrifice imaginable, eternal condemnation for the sake of his people. His concern for them is accompanied by incredible emotion, by a willingness to commit great sacrifice, but also his concern for them is rooted in his kinship with them, right? He says, for the sake of my people, Paul's an Israelite, right? He is a Jew. For the sake of my people, for those of my own race, the people of Israel. In other words, he, he, they are his brethren. They are his kinsmen. They are his people. You can imagine the anguish of heart that Paul is experiencing here if you have a loved one, if you have a family member that is of your own family that you know is not a believer in Christ. You, you understand to some degree the anguish that Paul is experiencing here. These are my people. This is my family. I want them to be saved. And so he identifies with them on a very personal level. It's an emotional level. It's a, it's a kinship family level. And he's willing to lay down his own soul for their salvation. So it's a personal concern. But it's also a historical concern. Paul has a historical concern for the Israelite people. The people of Israel have a long history of relationship with God, don't they? So going above and beyond just the personal concern that Paul has because he loves them and they're of his own people, now he's moving to a higher level of concern in that there is such a history of relationship between God and this Israelite people that, that he wants them to be saved. There's a long history going all the way back, in a sense, to the beginning with Adam and Eve. And then tracing it through Adam and Eve's son, Seth. And then through their descendant, Noah. And through Noah's descendant, Shem. And through Shem's descendant, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on through the 12 sons of Israel. There's a long history of God's relationship with these people. And the Israelite people have been the beneficiaries of God's grace and blessings throughout the ages, haven't they? And that's what Paul draws our attention to when he says that the Israelite people, theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises, the patriarchs and the human ancestry of the Messiah. He's pointing us to all of those historical blessings that God has bestowed on the Israelite people because of the special relationship that has existed there. And so Paul says the Israelite people have the adoption to sonship. Now, we might think, if, if you've been with us in Romans, that phrase sounds very familiar, and it's because he mentioned it in chapter 8, except the way that Paul used it in chapter 8 is he used it of those who are Christians, those who are in Christ, who have the, the indwelling Holy Spirit, they are now adopted to sonship. 
in the family of God by which they can cry out, Abba, Father. Which raises the question, does Paul then see it that the Israelite people as a whole, all of them, all Jews descended from Abraham, that they are all saved and have this adoption to sonship. He does not. And so Paul is using this phrase, adoption to sonship, probably in a little bit slightly different way not to speak of their own individual personal salvation for all of them, but to speak of the nation of Israel collectively as a people having experienced, in a sense, the privileges of God to a son. Of a father to a son. In fact, we see many times in the Old Testament where Israel, as a people, are referred to as God's son. God's child. And so I don't think Paul here is talking about the fact that every single Israelite is saved just by virtue of the fact that they're an Israelite. In fact, throughout much of his letter, Paul's been arguing exactly the opposite, right? You're not a Christian because you're from Abraham. You're not a Christian because you have the law. You're not a Christian because you're circumcised. So throughout the whole letter of Romans, he's been saying, you're not a Christian just because you're a Jew or because you're an Israelite. And his concern for them is that they are not believing in Christ. And he wants them to be saved. So adoption to sonship here is probably more of just a general blessing of God to the Israelite people historically. As he entered into covenants with them. He says theirs is the divine glory. And perhaps what he is referring to here is the way that God's manifestation of his glory came to rest in the tabernacle, and in the temple, in that his presence was specially located, and his glorious presence was specially located with his people in the, in the midst of them. And it moved with them in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, and then settled in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and the temple. This glory of God belonged to the Israelite people. And he says, the covenants... The Israelite people have had the covenants, and he uses the plural, which means he has probably more in view than just the covenant at Sinai with Moses and the Israelite people. He probably also includes the Abrahamic covenant, the the covenant with Noah, the covenant with David, that David and his family line would be the kings of Israel. So not just one covenant, but multiple covenants, multiple agreements that God entered into with these people by grace. There's our, the covenants. They have the receiving of the law that, that this special revelation of God, the Torah of God was given to them on Mount Sinai. Through theophany, through this visible manifestation of God and his power, he granted to them his divine word. What incredible privilege that is. He says theirs is the temple worship, which probably involves the entire sacrificial and priestly system of the Old Testament. That they had this relationship with God and the offering of sacrifices and this mediation through this priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, to go before God and to worship Him. That was theirs. They also had the promises. All the promises of God 
They are given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They belong to the Israelite people. Theirs are the patriarchs. And he draws them to look at the fact that Israel can trace its ancestry and its relationship with God all the way back to the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in addition to that, from these people, and on top of all of those blessings, these people, the descendants of Abraham, had the privilege of being the people from whom the Savior of the world would come. The Messiah, the anointed one of God, came out of these people. And so Paul has a historical concern for these people because of their special relationship with God and all of the blessings and privileges that they have received. And now, in the next thing that I want to to draw our attention to this morning is that Paul has a personal concern for them, he has a historical concern for them, but he has a theological concern for the Israelite people. And what does that mean? It means that not only has there been a historical relationship there, but Paul is also concerned about the character of God. What's going to happen to these promises if Israel's not saved? What's going to happen to these covenants that God, his, his oaths that he has entered into with these people, what's going to happen to those covenants if the Israelite people are not saved? What's the use of having these privileges, of having the patriarchs and the giving of the law and uh, all of the divine glory and all of What's the use of it if ultimately they are lost? He has a theological concern. And so these blessings to the Israelite people, they were a gift of God's grace. And now Paul is in a sense asking, has God abandoned that grace to his Israelite people that he has chosen and blessed with all of these privileges. Can God renege on his electing grace, on his covenantal oath or his promises? Can God break his word? What are the advantages of having these privileges if they can still ultimately be lost? It's a theological concern. And we can see this theological concern in verse number six, right after this introduction, when Paul says, it is not as though God's word had failed. You can see that's where his concern is. So what of all these Israelites not believing in Jesus? Are they going to be lost? And if they're going to be lost, what does that say about the word of God? And the faithfulness of God to his promises. And what does that say about the character of God? That's what's fundamentally at issue throughout Romans 9 through 11. What is God's plan? And how does it fit with his character and who he is? But I want you to see that Paul's theological concern also involves the person of Christ and who he is. Notice something incredibly important in verse number five. He says, theirs, that is the Israelite people, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. The next phrase, 
who is God over all? Blessed forever. Amen. That is an incredibly powerful statement. Because what Paul is saying as a part of his theological concern for the Israelite people is that in rejecting Jesus as their Messiah and Savior, they are rejecting God. Because Jesus of Nazareth, their anointed Messiah, he is God. He is God. As John says in John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And this Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. If they reject Jesus as their Messiah and Savior, they are rejecting God. This is one of the most powerful declarations of the deity of Christ in all of Scripture. Jesus, the Messiah, is God. To be blessed and praised forever. And so his theological concern is also a Christological concern. That we understand who this Jesus is that the Israelite people must believe. And so he has a personal concern, a historical concern, a theological concern for the Israelite people. And lastly, briefly, I just want us to see that he has a soteriological concern. That's a big word. It means it's a word that comes from two Greek words, soter, salvation, and ology, the word, the study of salvation. It is a soteriological concern. In other words, Paul has a salvation concern for the Israelite people. He is concerned with their salvation. So throughout Romans 9 through 11, one of the things that Paul is wrestling with through all three of these chapters is what of the salvation of the Israelite people? Will they be saved? If so, how will they be saved? Paul was willing to be cursed for his own people that they might be saved. But, and don't miss this, Paul was willing to be cursed so that his Israelite people could be saved. But here's the thing. There is one who has already been cursed so that Israel might be saved. Abraham could not offer Isaac as a sacrifice. That would not remedy the problem. Moses was willing to have his name blotted out from the book of life, but that would not solve the problem. Paul is willing to, to curse himself for the salvation of his own people. That would not fix the problem. There is only one who can be cursed and fix the problem so that others might be saved, and that is Jesus. As the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. 
Jesus Christ took our curse. Jesus Christ was cursed. He himself who knew no sin, he became sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There is only one who can be cursed. And it's not Isaac. It's not Moses. It's not Paul. It's not anyone else. There is only one who can be sacrificed for the salvation of not only the Israelites, but for all of the peoples of the world. And that curse has already been carried by Jesus the Messiah. And so that's why Paul speaks in more of a hypothetical way. I I could wish that I could be cursed for the sake of my people, but he knows that he can't because really it would be ineffectual even if he could because he is not the appropriate substitute. But there is one who is, and he's already come. And so he has a soteriological concern for his people. And throughout Romans 9 through 11, he's going to emphasize what he's been saying all along. And that is that even if you are a Jew, even if you're an Israelite, you are not saved by being an Israelite. You're saved through Christ. The same way that everyone in the world is. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew and the Greek. And there's one way. And so Paul's intense concern for the salvation of the Israelite people really is rooted in a couple of things. It's rooted in his love for them as his people but it's also rooted in his desire for the magnification of the glory of God. So Paul's concern for the Jewish people is rooted in his love for them and in his desire for the magnification of the glory of God. And I believe that those are the same two root concerns that should drive us to share the gospel with our neighbors and friends and family members. That we love them, that we are concerned for them as people of the human race, as of our own people, of our own family, our own friends, our own neighborhood, that we are concerned for them and have a love for them, but also that we desire the magnification of the glory of God by Him saving graciously people that don't deserve to be saved. And so the same things that were motivating Paul should motivate us to love others and to see God glorified. Therefore, we desire the salvation of those around us. And we are willing to be used as tools, as witnesses for their salvation. May God be praised. Let's bow together. Our Father in heaven, you are all glorious and righteous, and holy, and true. And you are merciful, and compassionate, and loving. You have given us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the way to you, the way to the Father, is through him. And that is true for the Jew first, 
as well as to the Gentile. And so, Lord, we have the privilege of being called the children of God, not because we are physical descendants of Abraham, but because we are spiritual descendants of Abraham by faith. And that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are your children. Lord, thank you for your word today that showed us in a very powerful way Paul's concern for the salvation of his people. Lord, may we be concerned for the salvation of our family, of our neighborhood, of our friends, of our co-workers. May we have a concern of love for them and a desire for your grace, your mercy to be magnified and praised. Lord, thank you for your unchanging and unfailing promises and for your glorious plan of salvation that you planned before the foundation of the world. Lord, bless us today as your people, and may we go in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.